0: If you have your Bibles, turn to Proverbs chapter 10. Growing up on a farm as I did, I really appreciate some of the Proverbs because of their setting in a, for the most part, an agrarian culture. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 4 says, He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a wise son, and he who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. We're going to be looking this morning at the subject of teaching children to work, and I have to say that I would not trade my years growing up on a farm for anything. Now, don't misunderstand me, I certainly would not want to be a farmer today, but the the experiences I gained in learning how to work on a farm were invaluable to me. And I think still have a lot of effect upon my life. Um, In the book, Parenting by God's Promises, at the end of one of the chapters, uh, toward the end of the book, Cotton Mather has a, uh, there's a section on Cotton Mather's Parental Resolutions Resolutions that he made in terms of raising his children. And point number 18, I thought, was especially appropriate for our subject today. He writes, among all the points of education which I will endeavor for my children, I hope to see that each of them, the daughters as well as the sons, may gain insight into some skill that lies in the way of gain however their their own inclinations may most carry them, so that they may be able to subsist themselves and get something of a livelihood in case the providence of God should bring them into necessities. Why not they as well as Paul, the tent maker? The children of the best fashion may have occasion to bless the parents that make such a provision for them. The Jews have a saying worth remembering. Whoever does not teach his son some trade or business teaches him to be a thief. I thought that was quite well stated. He who does not teach his son a trade or business teaches him to be a thief. Isn't it interesting that the Bible records for us that the father of the Lord Jesus Christ was a carpenter and that Jesus actually worked as a carpenter along with him. He was teaching his son a trade, even though he may not have known fully what his son was to be or was about, yet he was intent upon making sure that his son was not going to be a thief. So I thought that was, that was very, very interesting. Joy and I were talking this morning as we were eating breakfast, she asked me, exactly what I was going to be teaching on this morning. I told her, and she said, isn't it really something that we have to even think about teaching our children to work? You know, again, growing up on a farm, you just assumed that was what you did. If you didn't do it, you didn't eat. And I always think back, um, all the farmers had a truck that would have on the side of it so-and-so and sons. And the implication of that was those sons are going to be working with me on the farm. Now, I know one dairy farmer that had nothing but girls, and he had Clyde Heininger and daughters <laughs> on his truck. <laughs> but, you know, I, I thought that was great because, you know, I remember uh, growing up when I was too, too young yet to milk cows. My sisters were in the barn milking cows with my father. They didn't like it. And they were so glad when I got old enough that I took their place. But they were working. You just assumed that work was what you did. Now, I want us to to think this morning, first of all, along the lines of a biblical theology of work. Because we want to base our whole uh, study this morning on the scripture. And you find it, first of all, in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. Some of you may remember that when I retired, uh, when I retired, I had finished the 39th chapter of Genesis. And I remember when I started Genesis I made the statement that here I am saving the book of Genesis as the last book that I would teach through. And I wished that I had started with Genesis because Genesis lays the foundation for the rest of Scripture. There's a reason why it's the first book in the Bible. And Genesis lays the foundation for us of teaching our children to work in Genesis chapter two. We read and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So the creation of the world was God's work. Now work for God is not the same for, as it is for us in a fallen world. Work for God was the normal, how do you say it, of God? The normal course of his being. He works constantly in, through his works of providence. He is always at work. For us, and we're going to see why, but for us, work It's a four letter word. Most of us dread it. We can't wait till we can say TGIF. We can't wait until we can get off of work. But that's not the way it was originally intended to be. Work is what we call what John Murray called a creation ordinance. And you see it tied with the Sabbath ordinance, which is also. A created ordinance. And there's a reason why the fourth commandment does not just talk about rest. You know, we we always focus on the rest aspect of the fourth commandment. It begins by saying six days you shall labor. That's a command as well. Six days you shall labor and the seventh day you shall rest. Both of them rooted in what God has done in Genesis Chapter two. So then man created in God's image. And don't ever forget that your children are created in God's image and are to live out that image of God in their life. Thus they are to learn to work just as we have had to learn to work. So man created in God's image is to work. And you see in Genesis chapter one. Verses 26 through 28, let us make man, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, notice this, and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the, the primary work that God gave to man, created in his image, was the task of exercising dominion over all of the creation. And you'll notice then that the very first work that God gives to Adam in terms of specifics, I guess I would say, is found in chapter 2. In verse 19, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to all the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And then it goes into course of the creation of Eve. Think about it in terms of Adam being newly created, everything around him completely new, and he has to name all the animals of the field. Where does he come up with the names? Do you ever think about that? I mean, this when you really start to think about it, it's amazing. I suspect there was some brain work that had to go into naming all the animals. How do I decide that that's a lion and that's a a bear? There had to be something going on there in his mind to enable him to do that. And it wasn't just that, oh, okay, that's what I'll call it. No, there was some work involved in all of that. We see also that he was placed in the garden to tend it, and to keep it. So tending the garden mean, means, I believe, that that Adam and his wife Eve were to work in such a way as to, how shall I say it? You know, it, it's hard to think of a world without sin. And, and trying to put it into words is somewhat difficult. But they had to, they were to tend it in such a way as to reveal or enhance, how can you say you enhance the glory of God? You don't. But they had to somehow reveal the glory of God in all that he had created. And so that was the work. Now what's interesting about this to me is that they enjoyed their work. How many of you thoroughly enjoy your work? I love it. You're a sick man. (laughs) (laughs) no I, i know what you mean we we can enjoy our work if we do it from a proper motive and god we're going to see that god has redeemed work but for most of us you know we would have to say that while we may enjoy what we do there are parts of it that are just sheer drudgery we don't like it even though the overall effect May be good. But think of Adam and Eve again, if you would, in their situation. They were surrounded by nothing but beauty. There was no drudgery, none at all. We read in Romans chapter 1, and I alluded just briefly to this the last time I spoke on Sunday evening, they could even see the concept of the Trinity in creation. Because Romans chapter 1 tells us that the creation reveals his eternal nature and godhead. You ever think about that? We don't see it because of sin. He did. Adam and Eve saw what we will see someday when we are lifted out of these mortal bodies and our bodies become immortal. The veil is lifted from our eyes. Then we will see. And now this is a personal point of view. I don't think that that in the consummation that we're going to float around on clouds playing harps. I think we're going to work. But I think it's going to be work that we are going to just be enthralled to do. Because all around us is the glory of God. There were no thorns. There were no weeds. There were no briars. There were no bosses who gave stupid orders. (laughs) Everything was as it should be in the original creation. But then we come to chapter 3 of Genesis and work becomes difficult. Adam And it's interesting that in in our theological concepts, we speak of Adam and Eve being under the covenant of works. And they failed. They failed to keep the covenant of work by their disobedience to God. And, of course, by covenant of works, we simply mean do this and you will live. Don't do this. If you disobey, you will die, which is exactly what took place. So as a result of the failure of Adam and Eve to fulfill the covenant of works, God then could have killed them immediately. Could have just put an end to the whole thing, started over, but he didn't. But what he did do is he pronounced a curse upon the work, upon them, upon the serpent, and upon the ground that they tilled. And I... Again, a bit of theological speculation here, if I may. I think that he placed that curse upon the work of man to cause us to look forward with great anticipation to that day when it will no longer be a curse for us. Knowing that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. So in Genesis chapter 3. In verse, beginning in verse uh, 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall, you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now, I think there's a couple of very important concepts for us to understand here that go a long way toward helping us understand why we need to train our children to work. First of all, tending the earth, work, let's just call it what it is. Tending the earth, which previously was a joy, now has become tedious. It has become toilsome. It's no longer the joy that it once was. And Adam would sweat because of the work involved in taming the thorns and the thistles. Now, if you haven't grown up on a farm, you may not understand this, but Clearing a field of briar patches, of thorns, is hard, hard work. You get cuts all over you from the thorns. It is, you know, you, if you think you can just cut them down and that's the end of it, you're sadly mistaken. You've got to uproot them or they come right back. It is hard, hard work. And then, after his work was finished, after he had done what he could to subdue this part of the earth, he returns to the dust from which he was made. You know, it's like, uh, I think it's Alexander Solzhenitsyn talks about when he was in the gulag. They would have the prisoners take rocks and move them from one pile over to another pile. And the next day, you know what they would have them do? Take those same rocks and move them back to the pile from which they had originally taken them. Just sheer drudgery. No purpose whatsoever in the work. So it's just the the lack of purpose in work, which we so often find, even in our own work today. Now, when you think about the thorns and the thistles, I mean, again, written in an agrarian culture we don't live in that agrarian culture for the most part today. What are the thorns and the thistles that you encounter? It's the boss that gives stupid orders. That's one thing. It's the difficulty in figuring out a problem that keeps you from accomplishing what you want to accomplish. And have you ever noticed how oftentimes you procrastinate in starting something because you know of the difficulty that is coming because of the sin that has entered the world and the problems inherent now in that. Quite honestly, procrastination is a result of the fall. It is a result of knowing the thorns and the thistles that are there to fight against you. Why is it that we even many times don't want to engage with another person in a relational problem? Because it's hard. It can be hurtful. And so we don't want to do it. And so we will do everything we can to avoid those things. And avoidance is one of the great tools of the procrastinator. If you let your children play all day long on their, what do you call their iPhones or, you know, the, the newfangled electronic things. I don't even know if the names of them are anymore. Xbox or whatever. Just like Pardon? Just call them devices. Devices. OK. <laughs> In more ways than one. Um, You know, you're going to teach them that that's easier than the work that you assign them to do. And so, what are they going to want to do? They're going to want to go there. Do we not want to do that as adults? You know, I can look back over the years, and there have been times when I knew I was going to be handling a particularly difficult text of Scripture. I wanted to do anything other than dive into that and tackle it because I knew it would be hard. And that's the inclination that sin brings—is to avoid things that are difficult in relationships, in work, whatever it might be. It's a result of the fall. The thorns and the thistles, the briars, are always there. They won't leave until the consummation of all things. Did you have some letters? Yeah. What's interesting is we—we become so simple now. We even try to figure out ways to get out of them. Yeah. I see it all the time at work. They'll, if, you, if they don't want to do something, they'll figure out all kinds of excuses to say, oh, I didn't have time to do this. Or I didn't, you know, it's amazing. Yeah, my dog ate my homework. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some other ways that we, think about this for a minute. What are some of the ways that we avoid mm-hmm. what is difficult? Do the easy things first. Yeah, do the easy things first. You know, something that I was taught, and I don't always follow it, but I try to, Is if you have a list of things to do, do the hardest one first. Get it over with. Because from then on, it's downhill. But we like to do the easy one. Hoping that something will come along so that we don't have to do the hard one. And it never happens. What are some other ways that we try to avoid the difficulties of work? You'll figure it out tomorrow when you go back to work. You'll be thinking about it then. But thankfully, God redeems work. In Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God promises here, even as he pronounces the curse, that he will send one who will overturn, as we read in the book of Hebrews. He will destroy the works of the devil. Thank God that he gave this promise. And so throughout the Old Testament, then, we see God working in his providence. He works to bring the Messiah into the world. And he even works through the sin of man to do it. David should have been with his armies out in the field as the king. But he wasn't. You ever wondered why? Probably more comfortable back in the palace. But it's there that sin enters into his heart. Well, it's already in his heart where sin tempts him, he commits sin with Bathsheba, kills her husband. But God, from that union, brings the Messiah into the world. From the union of David and Bathsheba, sinful as it was, God in his providence was working to bring Christ into the world. And you can look at, you know, if you go through the genealogy of Christ in Matthew and in Luke, There are three or four instances in there where a particular woman is mentioned. And it's almost always in an occasion of sin on the part of the man involved. And yet God in his providence works out the bringing of the Messiah into the world. God is always at work. And next time you face a difficult situation at work, don't forget, God is also at work. You're not the only one working. God's greatest work, of course, is that work of redemption. In John chapter 9 and verse 4, to save sinners, Jesus said, I must work the works of him who sent me. Have you ever thought of Jesus as engaging in work? I mean, he didn't just walk around for enjoyment, though he enjoyed it. But it it was to do the work that his father had sent him. To do. And in John chapter 5 and verse 17, we see Jesus following in the steps of his Father. John chapter 5 verse 17. Jesus said, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. So again, we see that God has not stopped working ever. And Jesus is following in the steps of his father. And then when Jesus was asked, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? In John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. And then Jesus carries the work of God to completion. We see in John chapter 17 and verse 4. John chapter 17 and verse 4. Jesus says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had before the world was. So Jesus carries the work of God to completion and his work is to lift the curse from mankind. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. We read in the book of Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. So that work no longer has to be drudgery. Work no longer has to be uh, totally controlled by the thorns and the briars and the thistles. But rather, because we are in union with Christ, we can work the works of our heavenly father. So God has redeemed work and we are to work as Adam and Eve were to have worked. In such a way as to reflect the glory of God. I think we forget that when we are about our daily work. That we are to do so in such a way that we reflect the glory of God. Just look with me at a few texts of scripture. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Uh, Colossians, back to Colossians in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. A good verse for us to remember when we would like to get out of work. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So that's just a very brief biblical theology of work. Now, let's talk here in these last few minutes, just some practical principles for teaching our children to work. And underlying all of these principles has to be what we said, what we were looking at here at the very last. Do all for the glory of God. That is what we need to teach our children above and beyond everything else. That whatever they do, they're not doing it to get a good grade. They're not doing it to please us. They are to do it for the glory of God. So principle number one. Teach your children to work even when they are playing. Now, someone has said, and I'm not a fan of, I think it was, the Montessori person, whatever her name was. And I'm not a fan of Montessori schools. But she made the statement, I think, to the effect that a child's work is play. And while there is an element of truth in that, you can teach your children to work even when they are playing. I cannot tell you the number of times in our own home We, we have these drawers that pull out and they have tinker toys and blocks and all kinds of things. And kids come over. Our grandkids know exactly where those are. First place they head is to that place. And out all over the... Oh, I tell you what, I get so tired of stepping on Legos. Legos all over the place. And how many times... As they are, before they leave, they say to their children, "Okay, let's pick up your toys. You know who ends up picking them up most of the time? Mom and dad. Wrong. Wrong. And you cannot imagine the excuses that a four-year-old can give. And if if you don't think that children are sinful, just watch a four-year-old in this situation. The excuses they can give you for not doing it. Mm -mm. You make them pick up their toys. They have to learn to work even in that situation. And it doesn't have to be harsh. Make it a game with them. Let's see who can pick up the most. If they have any kind of competitive spirit about them, they'll jump in and do it. But you've got to teach them that. It isn't inherent in us since the fall to work. The thorns and the briars and the thistles tell us, no, avoid it. No, you can't let the thorns and the briars and the thistles rule. Teach them, even when they are playing, to work. They learn quickly. So make it fun, if you can. Make a game out of it for them, but teach them to work. You do your children no favors. If you... Tell them to pick up their toys and when they whine and complain, you do it for them. Let me take you to a passage of scripture that I love in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 18. Chasten your son while there is hope and do not set your heart on his destruction. The word chastener there does not necessarily mean spank. It means discipline. Teach them what they need to know so that they don't destroy themselves because the natural bent is toward their own self-destruction because that's the bent of sin in our lives. There's another verse. And I thought that's where I was going here. And it may be in the same chapter, but it tells us to discipline a son and to not Stop the chastening for his much crying. If anyone knows exactly what that is, tell me. I'll have to look it up later. They will do everything they can to keep you from making them work. Don't let it happen. You've got to work together with the Spirit of God to overcome that sin that is within them. Work is learned over time and with practice. You know, you start your children off with small chores. And be specific as to what you expect from them. Don't give them more than their age allows them to understand or that they're capable of doing. You know, my wife was a a child development specialist, and then we got married and started developing children. Um, (laughs) She has been so great to keep me from expecting more of my children than they were capable of doing. But also to make sure that they did what they are capable of doing. So give them what their age, their understanding will allow them to do. Another principle of leadership that I learned is you will expect what you inspect If you tell your child to do something and yet you never check to see if they've done it, if you never inspect them, they'll learn that you don't really expect them to do it. Inspect it. And if it's not as it should be, get together with them and teach them. Help them to know what it is that they needed to do and to do properly. Don't let them get away with a sloppy job. Don't let them get away with just putting the red Legos in the box. No, the red and the yellow and whatever other millions of colors there are. All of them have to go back in the box. Not just a few. Don't let them do a sloppy job. Instill again in them that they are doing this for the glory of God. And if they want to. And, you know, even if they don't understand the, co- the concept of the glory of God, you still begin to instill that in them by telling them this is what God expects us to do, to obey when mom and dad tell you to do something. That brings glory to God when you obey as he has instructed you to do. Teach them basic skills, such as cleaning up after themselves, other menial tasks such as that. You know, it's really not a big deal to teach your children to make their bed or to pick up their toys. That's pretty simple, but it's important skills for later in life. Again, don't let them procrastinate. Uh, I say children are the greatest procrastinators. No, we adults are. We're the greatest ones, and they learn it from us. But don't let them procrastinate. And of course if you don't let them procrastinate. What does that say to you? You can't either. You got to do what God commands you to do. One of the notes I had is what Gary mentioned. Teach them to do the most difficult part first. Teach them. Not just specific tasks. Teach them foundational skills. Skills such as perseverance. Keep at it until it's done. Don't let them stop in the middle as if that's good enough. Problem solving. We had an old saying on the farm, baling wire is the farmer's best friend. You know what baling wire is? Hay bales, you know, that are wrapped together. We would always take wire off of hay bales and we would tie it around a fence post. And the reason we did that is because if something broke, Rather than go all the way back to your shed where all your tools were, you could at least temporarily fix it by tying it together with baling wire. And you always kept a pair of pliers on hand so you could twist that baling wire really tight so that it was fixed. And then at the end of the day, when you were going to go back into the, uh, the house anyway, the shed where your tools were, then you go back in and you don't waste all that time going back and forth. I remember I learned this one time because we had a a farmer I was working for had a plow that they don't even use these anymore. This shows you how old I am. They don't even use these kind of plows anymore. But we used to have plows that would have sharp points on them that would dig into the dirt and turn the ground over. Now they don't turn ground over anymore to save the topsoil. They just disk it up. But these Plows, used to, when we would plow a wheat field up, it would get all this wheat stubble in it, and it would just kind of ride along the top of the ground. It wouldn't dig in. Well, I didn't realize this, but the farmer I was working for had a newfangled kind of plow that when that happened, there was a hinge that would let the plowshare tilt back up, and the, the straw then would drop out. Well, I didn't know that. And he didn't tell me that. And so one day, all the uh, the, one of those hushers popped up like that. And I looked, I thought, what in the world? I've broken this thing. And I drove all the way back in, wasted a good solid hour driving back into the farm shed. And he said, oh, here's what happened. He took his foot and kicked it back down. I thought, duh. You know, but that's something I had to learn. But I wasted that hour there. Thankfully, he still paid me for it. So teach them how to solve problems. It is important for many, many areas. Teach them that they need to work toward a goal. Set goals for your children. Teach them to concentrate. Teach them to be diligent in what they do. Let me just finish here because we're almost out of time. Some parental attitudes toward teaching your children to work. Teach your children first and foremost that all work is based upon the truth of Scripture. In all we do, due to the glory of God. Teach them the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I ran across a, a saying. And by the way, if you want a good book, Mary Beakey, Joel Beakey's wife, has written one called Teach Them to Work. And I found here in her, in her, one of her chapters, this statement. Your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks more than your talk talks. Say that real fast three times. <laughs> your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks more than your talk Talks. If they see you work and they see you enjoy your work, good chance they will enjoy it and will do it as well. If they see you diligent, if they see you persevere, good possibility they will do the same. Be encouraging to them. Don't criticize every bit of work that your children do. Harshness and criticism kills the spirit, even if they have not done a good job, find something you can encourage them with and then teach them how to do a better job. But encourage them with it. Admonish them gently if they fail to do what they're supposed to do. We read in the book of Revelation chapter 3 and verse 19 what the Lord does. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And again, the word chasten there, be translated admonish, discipline. Do it gently if they fail to do what they're supposed to do. Encourage them in it. Don't expect all your children to be the same either. They're all going to be different. Some of them will jump at the chance to work. And if they want to work with you, Let them do it. I mean, even if it's a small bit, let them do it. They're learning as they work with you. Learn their learning and work styles. I think my father learned early on that I was not going to be a farmer. I like to read too much. And uh, thankfully, that's the direction they guided me in. So you have to learn what is it that your children do best all right i'm going to stop here hopefully we can take from if nothing else from this biblical theology of work some principles that will help us in teaching our children to work let's close in prayer thank you father for this time this morning father i pray that you would enable us to live out the image that you have placed within us of yourself that we might work for your glory, that we might teach our children to work for your glory as well. And I pray, Father, that we would not be, we would not grow weary in doing well. That we would continue to be steadfast and abounding in the work of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.